Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. I always get a delightful frisson when I see an actor or comedian or performer not known for his or her work in the horror genre and discover evidence that they are indeed one of us, Google Gobble. As a huge fan of the British comedy troupe, The League of Gentlemen, it became quite obvious from their self-titled BBC series that these guys knew and loved Tales of Terror. They filled their episodes with tropes and darkness that could only have come from fans of horror movies and books and television. The episodes of the, this wonderfully oddball series often dipped into scary storytelling that was knowing and surprising. One of the members of the league, Reese Shearsmith, has already joined us on the slab and professed his love and knowledge of the genre, and we are lucky to have another former member of the troupe with us. Mark Gatiss started out as an actor at a young age, but in 1995, the League of Gentlemen drew attention on stage, winning an award at the Edinburgh Film Festival before moving on to radio and television success. As the members of the League made their separate careers moving forward, Gatiss showed time and again his fascination and passion for sanguinary stories that bond us here at Postmortem. His appearances in genre shows have been many, but as a writer, he helped reboot Doctor Who, one of his childhood passions. He also, with Stephen Moffat, created the brilliant Sherlock series and delightfully played Mycroft Holmes in the show. He also created Dracula for the BBC, an elaborate and beautiful retelling of the Bram Stoker classic. But his bona fides also include two wonderful documentaries, a history of horror and a history of British horror. It's time for us to learn a lot more about Gatiss's love for horror and the impact he's made on ghastly entertainment. Mark, welcome to the slab. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Oh, it's it's really great. I'm a huge fan of your work and and the wide disparity between the the drama and the comedy and the horror that you've contributed to. Uh, I get the feeling you were a really good student at school. Oh, I'm not sure about that. I was, um, I was always told, I'm sure you were, uh, and, and all of us were, as you say, <laughs> one of us, uh, well, I was always told I was living in a dream world. And I was always being told to sort of knuckle down and think about more practical things which I was entirely incapable so but but I, I I've often said my, my my career is like a long revenge against um, physical education uh, <laughs> and sometimes it works out you know sometimes the things that they tell you won't happen do happen so well. yeah, a mind hopelessly trapped in a body <laughs> Donovan's brain <laughs> <laughs> Now, see, there's a reference that uh, not everyone would get. Brain, I think it's 1950 or something like that. Uh, that uh, film used to be on TV all the time. It's never on anymore. It no. Used to, I used to trip over that film. It was done so often. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your, your early days. What do you think um, started your fascination with the, uh, with the dreadful, with the otherworldly? Well, it's very hard to say, isn't it? I mean, I think we can all tell a similar story. It's just a sort of affinity for something, right right from the get-go. I mean, the, I, I saw The Brides of Dracula, the Hammer movie, when I was four years old. Uh, my, uh, wow. I, used, I used to say, I used to think my parents were extremely liberal, and I realised one day with a blinding flash of inspiration that we just had to watch it because it's what my dad wanted to watch. <laughs> but they didn't mind, and I, I was hooked from the beginning, and, and Doctor Who the same year, uh, and anything vaguely supernatural I was drawn to. I used to get a bit cross when things weren't supernatural. You know, you'd watch an old <laughs> movie, and I just... It wasn't the same if it if it didn't have a ghost in it or a, a monster or something. Do you remember that that movie uh, Island at the Top of the World? 
Do you yes, know? absolutely. Uh, I mean, in every respect, that's that's got a lot going for it. It's a lovely Edwardian adventure film. It's got it's got an airship. It's a, it's the Arctic. Uh, it's full of eccentric British actors. But in the end, there are no dinosaurs. Uh, there are no, and you kind of, you go, it doesn't quite do it for me. You and felt that, cheated. Yeah, I, I, I still do. And that sort of thing, that's the sort of template, I suppose, for what I always enjoyed. I was always seeking out something vaguely uh, sinister um, because it just floated my boat. And it's very hard to explain to a, to a non-we uh, <laughs> why, why that why that makes a difference but it always did well in your childhood so many of us who create or are just fans of the genre um definitely were outsiders we we've talked about this a lot with many of the guests we weren't the prom kings and queens uh we were not on the football team was your childhood a a an outsider child um that maybe reached for the fantastic as an escape yeah, I wasn't. Um, I wasn't lonely. I remember. I mean, I had one really, one really good friend at, when I was at school. Yeah, I mean, we were inseparable, really, and we had exactly the same things in common. But I, I, I wasn't. I wasn't bullied or anything, and I, and I didn't. I was kind of popular. I just, I ah. just really. Uh, I always felt, I suppose, yeah, outside in that way. We, I mean, uh, I. Um, you know, I used to walk around the football pitch talking about horror movies, not not playing football and waiting <laughs> to get waiting to get hit in the face by the ball, which of course always happened. And, um, and one of my proudest possessions is a school report from when I was I must have been seven or eight, uh, and 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 the in under English it's a, it says it's a I got an A A plus and it says vivid imagination even if his even if his stories do re resemble scripts from Hammer films. An early <laughs> well, review. There was your launch pad right there. Yeah. <laughs> but they so, did. I, I, used to, I used to try and manipulate every single story into a horror story. <laughs> so you did have a friend with, with those tastes in common, which is, is yeah. a wonderful thing to have in childhood because otherwise, I mean, in my case, I didn't know anybody who felt the way I did about oh, these really? things. Well, in a way, that's the whole kind of famous monsters angle, isn't it? That, that, that an awful lot of people, I mean, of course, now they just find each other online. It's a very different thing. But things like um, famous monsters linked people together who would never have otherwise found each other, I suppose. So you found that available in the UK? Yeah. Um, yes, I remember... I suppose what I remember most vividly are the covers because they were so they were they were so vivid and, and oh uh, the Basil Gogos paintings yeah I, the, it's because they were paintings actually and, and in a similar way um, I was obsessed with the Aurora glow in the dark kits um, yeah. of which I only ever had one I was only ever allowed to buy one but I used to go every Saturday morning my my mum used to have her hair done and we used to go to the town centre. And I would be dropped off at the toy shop and I would literally just stand and stare at them for about, <laughs> for about an hour <laughs> until I was picked up by my dad. But I remember I remember that the boxes all stacked up and that I mean, the, the model could never, never be as exciting as the painting on the cover. <laughs> I mean, they're just not. They're just they're actually a little disappointing, but the, I'd give anything to own those paintings because I think yeah. they're absolutely they're, they're pop art classics they really are so beautiful which one did you have i had the mummy oh I, me too I, did, you, I, did you have the, you must have had the others though did you have the others i had just the mummy because no. it was a very working class and i i customized it and entered the famous monsters contest and won a plaque from forey ackerman of wow, the frankenstein face yeah. that's amazing you had the mummy only we are we and, are right our, our names are similar i think too. We must be twins somehow. Um, <laughs> I told you, one of us. Yeah. Uh, how odd that! I mean, I, and I think weirdly, I made the decision to get the mummy because my friend who had them all hadn't Ooh. yet got the mummy, and so in a stupid way, I decided to sort of best him, um, and then and then thought came home and thought, well, I wish I'd got, I wish I'd got um, Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but everybody got Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you actually grew up 
across the street from a hospital for the insane, I've read. Yes, uh, my dad worked there. He was a, a hospital engineer. And um, we, well, it was very, I've, I've sort of spent many years denying its impact on my on my psyche, but I think probably now it did have an impact on my psyche. I mean, it gave me a very positive attitude towards mental health, you know what I mean? Because I grew up with a lot of, uh, around a lot of disturbed people, but and I, it had a sort of gothic element to it, which I wasn't really aware of growing up. But looking back, I, I mean, I can, I remember, I remember my brother and I being left in a ward because I think my dad had picked us up from school and he was still at work. And we were just sort of left in this, in this ward full of, of disturbed people. And there was, there was someone who had, he had an empty eye socket oh and, he, and he put his thumb into it. Oh, yes. I've not forgotten that. So yes, I, I would think it's probably safe to say it did have an effect. An impact on me growing up. <laughs> Do you remember the first story that you ever wrote? not the very first but a lot of them as I say I used to write uh, I remember I remember around the time of that school report um, we were always we were we were given innocuous titles you know to write a, an English composition about something like that and I remember wanting to for some reason wanting to write a werewolf story called like father like son I remember waiting for that, to, uh, waiting for an opportunity when it was just like, write what you want. But uh, the one I really remember was writing a story called A Day at the Beach, in which they find uh, the family who go to the beach find a head in a bucket. <laughs> 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 That's probably why I got into But I did, I got in trouble. This is my version of the sort of um, the anti EC comics drive, as it were. I oh, got yeah. into trouble because my parents went to a, a parents' teacher's evening. And they came back and, and I was banned from watching horror movies because um, basically because they'd read all my stories and they were just all horrible. They're all horror stories. <laughs> and your I, father worked with the mentally disturbed. <laughs> yeah, he did enough to work. But um, what it was, a, what it was a, I think I said this in the documentary, but it was a, it was a very brief uh, purda because it was, it was a Friday night and we used to watch horror movies used to be on TV on a Friday night in a, in a special slot. And it was Revenge of Frankenstein, which is a very rare, it's still a rare Hammer film, actually. It's, it's not a widely seen one. And I was desperate to see it. Yeah. And my parents came home and, and for, forbade me. And I, I was sent to bed in tears. And then I remember lying there in the dark and then hearing them come to bed. And then I just sneaked back downstairs and watched it with my sister and nobody was ever any wiser. So I won in the end. <laughs> you won, you won. So when did the idea of performing come into your life? I guess I'd always, I mean, I, I've ended up doing the thing I always wanted to do, which is to write and act. And I suppose in that way, from early appreciation of watching horror movies and uh, and comedy and and just any any you know, drama in general, I suppose. I just I loved television. I loved old movies. There were a lot more old movies on television that, than than there are now. So you were able to get a kind of education. And I suppose I was just very steeped in that and in uh, a, an education in terms of of wonderful actors and and directors and uh and you become and you, you sort of you by osmosis you become aware of things that you? you become aware of people uh, that you like or uh, types of genre that you like or or directors that you like and you, you know that's that's what it's all about i think that and then of course you meet you meet people who will say oh you should you should read this or you should watch that and then and, and that's how it works that's how the baton is passed and suddenly you realize that you've got you've got taste and you, you, <laughs> you like certain things that other people don't like. And then, and then you then eventually you find somebody else who likes. <laughs> yeah. When did it first seem possible for you to actually enter that world of entertainment professionally? I, I mean, it, it, as a child, of course, it felt very distant because it was, it was what happened over, you know, over there. You, you, you watched, it was a, 
distant land of, of glittering show business. Um, but I went to I went to a drama school where, which is where I met Reese and, and Steve and Jeremy uh, from the league. And uh, it, you know, I suppose we all had we all had ambitions, but but it wasn't you know it didn't by any means mean it was going to actually translate into something. But at least it felt possible. Um, I I have a very 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 vivid memory of Reese seeing me off when I went off to do my first TV job. And I, I think I was the first person, first of us to do some, to do some TV. And it weirdly, it, it was filming in my hometown, but I remember standing outside the flat while the, when the car came to pick me up to drive me north. And it was, it was a big moment. Remember? It was like, Reese was seeing me off like my mum would, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so you went to your hometown, were your parents there to see you do your first TV gig? Yes, and actually, the strangest part was, of course, I could I could have stayed with them, but because um, I didn't mention that I was actually from the place, and so I was put up in there was a big hotel called Blackwell Grange. It's rather a good title, actually. Blackwell Grange is a posh hotel where I'd always wanted to stay. So the TV company put me up in there, and I, then I felt like a prop. I think I, I felt I made it then. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you are a true actor now. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um, was the Edinburgh Fringe Festival really a turning point for you? Oh, yes. Gosh, yes. So we, after we left um, Bretton Hall, which is the drama college we went to, um, we all did bits and pieces. And then we, we, uh, we formed the league about in about 94. Uh, and we would do, it was a sketch show, basically. And we, would, we would do it live on the Fringe. And then um, in 1996, uh, we put the best of our material together and took it to the Edinburgh Festival. Um, and we, we got an agent there and we got a radio show there. And then we went back the next year with a new show and we won the, the Perrier Award and that kind of changed everything. Really. I mean, you know, the thing is, it's never, in retrospect, it all looks very smooth, but there were lots <laughs> of things in between but it, it certainly was a huge turning point in terms of recognition and then the the radio series finally becoming a tv series and then that was that was sort of that was the game changer and i love that the tv series i i visited hadley a couple of weeks ago when i was at the bfi oh. where where royston vasey uh, the town of royston vasey and it was thrilling to see but what was great about the show that distinguished it from Little Britain or Monty Python or whatever, is that it was really dark. And it was yeah. it was a horror show, a horror comedy. Well, um, it's a funny thing, this big because it, it wasn't it it wasn't like we saw a gap in the market, as it were. It's just it was basically us. It, and and because the, the four of us were had very similar upbringings and backgrounds and, and a love of horror, it was sort of infused with horror. And also uh, horror comedies are some of our favorite things, everything you know, from, from, you know, from um, uh, House in Nightmare Park to Bride of Frankenstein, you know, to um, Theatre of Blood, of course, principally Theatre of Blood. Oh, that's um, so great. You know, so we, it, it was just our sort of sensibility. So it, it felt natural to have this kind of gothic uh, edge to it and then obviously as you as you pointed out we we then we packed it full of references to as many things as we could <laughs> <laughs> but what an opportunity to stretch your wings as both writers and as performers i mean each episode every, the three of you would each play at least two or three parts yes i mean that was a, that was a great joy that and i mean you know acting everyone gets into acting for dressing up and and we were this is our first big opportunity to do so. We just kind of obviously we we went crazy, uh, and then then of course eventually you sort of start to think, what have I not done? I mean, I think in the third series there are some very extreme looks because we were starting to think, well, we haven't. Well, <laughs> I played a character with with very well. That that the the idea is the eyes were meant to be like that. Yes. One look, as they say, one looking at you, one looking for you. Uh, and, <laughs> Because, but because the because the lenses are actually floating, they actually during the course of the filming they would just spin around. 
and I had to I was constantly having to sort of try and put them back to 10 to 2. <laughs> <laughs> well those characters were so brilliant but it also showed you not just as great comic actors but as great actors because if you can play this portray this variety of totally opposing characters and make it real. Yes, you're going for a laugh, but you're going for more than that. You're you're working from the inside out rather than the outside in, which I found fascinating. Well, you're very kind. But yeah, I mean, there's also a there's also I like what I really like is there's a strong element of pathos in it. There's a lot of a lot of the characters like Les McQueen uh, or, or Mickey. Uh, it's rather tragic and. Um, Mickey we in particular, Les and Mickey both are, are just, mm. your heart breaks for them. Well, that's, well that's, that's kind of, that's what we like to do, I suppose. That's what we enjoy doing. And, 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 and I think that's a huge, that's hugely down to the sort of, the sort of comedy we liked growing up ha, had at its heart, that kind of element. You know, there's, they always say about, um, uh, the best comedies are about trapped people, and 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 there are some really very moving moments in some of the funniest shows, uh, Steptoe and Son and Hancock and Porridge, and you know, there's even in Faulty Towers, yeah, there is a, there's an incredibly strong element of, I think that the fact that that Basil and Sybil were obviously at one time in their life a love match, and something in a kind of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf way has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> but you have to, you know, there's a wonderful bit where Sybil says something like, what are we going to do, Basil? He says, give it another 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bleak. <laughs> <laughs> 10 more years of that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, what was the, the first time you played a, a, a straight role that was not comedic? It was a straight dramatic role. Well, my first TV job, as I say, was I was playing the manager of a burger restaurant. So that was, I suppose. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I did. I, I, I suppose I've always, it's always been a, a bit of both. In fact, I've just been filming in New Zealand and um, uh, Time Bandits, in fact, the, the new series. Really? A remake of Time Bandits? It's a series, yeah. Lisa Kudrow is the leader and I had a fantastic oh. time. But the, uh, it was so silly. That I I, 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 I slightly off the leash. I thought, you know, I haven't been, I haven't been this silly for a very long time, and it, it was quite liberating <laughs> to just kind of go, well, uh, let's see how this, see how this sticks. <laughs> it was so much fun and so liberating. Yeah. So, but I've always enjoyed, you know, uh, mixing it up. I'm, um, I'm playing John Gielgud next year at the National Theatre, and in a wow. very serious play. Well, it's a great. Uh, I think about um, uh, John Gielgud directing Richard Burton's Hamlet on Broadway in 1965. Oh my God! Um, so it's it's great to to mix and match definitely. It is, and as someone who always guided his own career as a writer and a performer, how does it feel to have the luxury of not being responsible for anything but your performance? Oh God! As a it's hired hand, it's underrated. That is that I think <laughs> I, I have. Many times, um, the 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 relief of being able to close the door of your trailer. <laughs> a, couple, a couple of years ago, I'd been directing something, and and producing something, uh, and and then I then I did a filming job, a historical job, and I remember looking around, and the producer was kind of ashen with stress. I was constantly on his phone. And I remember just actually deliberately just closing the door of my caravan and just going to sleep. It's nothing to do with me. <laughs> you didn't want to share in that at all. No, I don't enough of that. I felt yeah. his pain, but I didn't want to share it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of your earliest passions was Doctor Who. And then many years later, here you are writing four Doctor Who novels and kind of responsible for the reboot of Doctor Who um, as a, a writer. And you performed yeah. in it as well. But yeah. tell me how that happened and how that must have felt for you. Oh, well, um, you know, there's a, there's a thing, isn't there, about smelling the flowers, as they say, and trying, trying to appreciate. It's only when you look back, you go, God, that was a moment, wasn't it? And that, that was a moment. Uh, 
you know, Doctor Who came off the air in 1989 and I wrote a couple of books. Uh, and, but I, I, I suppose, I don't really think I thought it would ever come back. And then suddenly everything changed. Uh, and I remember getting a phone call from a friend of mine saying, are you sitting down? I said, no, I'm, I'm in bed. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, Doctor Who's coming back, Doctor Who's coming back. And it was extraordinary. And then the next day, this is, I've forgotten this. The next day I rang someone else to tell them and that was David Tennant. Ah. And I remember, because David, obviously, as you know, is a huge fan. And I remember he, I'd left a, me- a cryptic message and he rang me back and I said, I can't tell you now, I'll have to. And he was desperate to know. It's so weird, isn't it? But it was, anyway, it was, um, it was an amazing moment. Um, so I knew Russell T. Davis a little and, uh, I wish I could remember, isn't it funny? You, you actually do forget the sequence of events. I'm pretty sure I had somehow been sent or had access to the story document. And it's it said episode three was called, my name's Dickens, Charles Dickens. And it was, a, it was basically a ghost story set in Victorian Cardiff. Oh, who's I, the right guy for that? <laughs> And then at Christmas, it was Christmas 2003, yes. Uh, Russell just rang me up and said, would you, would you write this? And, and so it was obviously the, the best Christmas present I could ever imagine. Oh, and and um, Dickens as well. <laughs> yeah, Dickens as well, yeah. And then it sort of became, after, the, after that, they started doing Christmas specials and that it's sort of now the, the sort of unofficial first Christmas special. It was the most Christmassy one you could imagine. And then I eventually I wrote, uh, I think wrote nine or 10 episodes over the years, including um, An Avenger in Space and Time, the story of how the programme was created, which was, a, which was an absolute definition of a labour of love. I, I, I wanted to do that for as long as I can remember. I just always remember thinking what a, the origin story, as it were, is, is so beautiful and uh, I had a book when I was a kid called The Making of Doctor Who and it was very much responsible for me wanting to get into into being a, a creator uh, uh, because I, I love the nuts and bolts of it. I love the show and I love the fiction of it but I remember finding the behind the scenes quality of it also very very interesting. Well, it's great to be able to pay tribute as a part of the team that created Doctor Who. But your paying tribute is something that uh, also was behind your documentaries about the history of horror, which are, they haven't been shown in the States, um, but they're wonderful. I used a VPN to watch them (laughs) uh, online. And they're just brilliant. Tell me about the motivation for that and then after that the motivation to do specifically british horror but you know the strange the strange thing was um i was approached out of the blue by a team from bbc bristol uh and it was like do you do you want to do a, an exhaustive three-part history of horror films to which i said yes i do <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, the odd thing is, I can say this to you, I think, I, I had slightly, um, I'd slightly lost the feel for it, for horror. Mm. Uh, I, was, I, felt, I felt out of the loop, I remember thinking that. When I was first approached, I thought, well, I don't really know much about modern horror films. Uh, I, I felt like I'd sort of uh, got out of the loop a bit. Um, but obviously, because it was it was talking about old horror films, I felt in a very secure place. So the first thing I did was ring my friend Jonathan Rigby, who is one of the world's greatest authorities on on uh, gothic horror, and I said, "This this should really be you, Jonathan." <laughs> but uh, but we we must make this thing together. And what we what we start our starting point was we did a massive sort of four hour interview with the producers where we just talked about horror, about all our memories, about everything we knew about Hammer and about uh, Mario Bava and about everything as a sort of, and that's why I think it's, it's fueled with proper passion because it's about, it's about how, how uh, our access point to horror, as it were, as you were saying earlier about 
how you grew up with it and what we loved about it and what we found funny about it, what we enjoyed about it. And so it was that hand in hand with, with an amazing rare opportunity to get to some people just in time. I think I was, I, I think doing it when we did was, was, was the last opportunity to get some people. And if you know the Kevin Brownlow series, Hollywood. Oh, fantastic. And when I watched, I remember watching that as a kid in 1980. And I couldn't quite get my head around the fact that he was interviewing Ruben Mamoulian. Oh. You know? And and yet, and now you look at it, it seems even more extraordinary. You've got these, you've got Frank Capra being interviewed in these massive 70s collars and things like that. Yeah, but, I got to sit who... next to him at an Academy Awards dinner when I operated R2-D2 in 1978. Oh, my God. Well, there we are. One handshake from Napoleon, aren't you? That's what yes. I tell you. Yeah. But I, I was, I felt that with, you know, um, I spoke, for instance, I spoke to Gloria Stewart on the telephone in mm. 1993 and sat outside her house. And this is before Titanic. And she didn't want to be interviewed because she thought she was too old and no one was interested in her. Oh. And I remember sitting outside this house in the suburbs of, of, uh, of Los Angeles and she had this uh, garden wall with a, with a green door and and I just wanted to go through the door. And then, what, 17 years later, when she was 101, I went through the door and interviewed her. Wow. And it was just extraordinary. So that and, and getting to all these amazing people and, and, and John Carpenter, that was, I, I loved the John Carpenter interview. He was so funny. And I, I remember he said, um, I said, you know, I wish you'd make a Western. You'd, I'd love to see a Western. He said, oh, sure. But, you know, there comes a time in life when you have to put your feet up and watch some basketball. <laughs> <laughs> that is John. And John is the most no bullshit guy I've ever met. Yeah, yeah, known, yeah. Him, known him since <laughs> Halloween. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was it was a, such a joy. And and I and, and what it did was completely reinvigorate my love for horror films and oh. also also because I got it, it was like a blood transfusion. Oh. Uh, and also I, I discovered things about films that I never, well, I knew very little about. I think that, I suppose the key was what we had access to when I was a child was very limited. Um, and I, I knew some films only as still photographs, you know. Uh, From and, and that, monsters and the like. Yeah, and that went for a lot of, a lot of rare, obscure old films, but also, you know, Mario Barber and stuff like that. I mean, I, I think I'd probably at that point only ever seen Black Sunday yeah, because you, there was no access to them. And suddenly it, it, and it changed my palette, as it were, about I, I found a lot of the films that I'd loved as a kid, you sort of, you slightly leave behind you and you go, actually, no, look, this, I, I mean, I think personally, as much as I loved Hammer, as a child, I think Mario Bava taking inspiration from them and then going somewhere, he goes somewhere much more interesting, I think, you know, you, you can, I was thinking if you, if you look at films like The Gorgon or um, those, those mid sixties Hammer films, they're quite stodgy, they, they look yeah. lovely, and, but they, you actually, you kind of go, ooh, and then you watch them and go, actually, it's a bit boring this. Yeah, and then they you kind of got away from their original free song. Yes, I think so. But if you watch a film like The Whip and the Body or Blood and Black Lace, and you just go, Christ, these are properly transgressive, aren't these? Are, these are weird, these films. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot to be said about being transgressive in the arts, particularly um, other to distinguish yourself from the pack, but also to make metaphorical points. Yes, and I think that's horror's great duty. Horror is not cozy. It's not safe. It shouldn't be. It's... Uh, at its best, I think it 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 does something extraordinary, really, in terms of you you can you can make satirical points, you can you can make social commentary through horror. It's a it's a fantastic medium for that. I think you you know you look at a film like um, Get Out, and uh, and by using the genre, it, it it manages to make a very very strong point that you would if it was done in a in a slightly 
more restrained way, it would just be yet another sort of slightly dull film about. Yes, about, guess who's coming to dinner? Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there seems to be a very wide gap between horror in the UK and horror in the US. Um, the UK, first of all, has a much longer history uh, and the Gothic past and all of these ghost stories, a tradition of ghost stories that goes well beyond Dickens, um, well, to Shakespeare. Um, and the US is much more, the studios make them for teenagers. They're slasher movies and they're much more instant gratification kills. But um, you, your documentary about a history of British horror was very specific and, and I think even more passionate for you. Um, it, it, it just felt like this love of British horror. Yes, you included all the, the roots in the American horror films as well, but it seemed even more personal to you. Well, I suppose it's, um, well, I did, so the, the, the first one is, it's called The History of Horror. The second one is called Horror Europa, and it's essentially about yeah. the European experience. Right, and that sorry. Was, no, that's all right. It was, uh, it was, it was um, a commission we never thought we'd get because it, I mean, God bless the BBC for doing something so extraordinary, a 90 minute one-off about European horror movies. But yes, in a way, I suppose it is because it's the, it's where, it's the roots of it all. And, and I suppose, uh, ghosts are my favourite things. I've just done another ghost story for Christmas for BBC and, and uh, it's an incredible tradition to be, to be part of and I um, I suppose I do respond most to that kind of European sensibility and that 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 legacy I guess you know I mean you, you I'm sure you will have seen that fantastic documentary uh, about folk horror which is on uh, yes oh that Kayla Janice did yeah yeah it's terrific. I mean, it's all, I watched the first 10 hours and then I had a break. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastically detailed. I mean, I was just writing down movies that I'd never heard of. You know? yeah. But what's wonderful is that it, it makes a really great case out of the fact that of, the, the bulk of it is about Britain because, of, because the, the, the folk story tradition goes so far back. But then what's really fascinating is basically the idea of the American transplant. And what that means, I think, you know, that, that uh, into Salem and then it becomes a much more sort of um, it's a different kind of Gothic sensibility, isn't it? But it's always got its roots back in the old country or, it, right. or it's the it's about the taint of Europe, isn't it? In a way, it's about some sort of uh, I love all that. It's in a way also it goes back to that. The central thread of Dracula is that that he. He, he says, I long to stand in the, in, in the beating heart of your modern city. He, his old country is dry, desiccated and dead. He's, star he's basically starving to death. He says, and he needs to go somewhere new. And I think that's, um, it's a great metaphor for the sort of migration of horror around the world. Yeah. It, it does that. It, it, it flourishes in a place and then it moves on. And then you get a whole new sensibility. Yeah, I mean, horror in the U.S. in the '70s really blossomed with with metaphorical horror and with people like Carpenter and Toby Hooper and William Friedkin, really doing something specifically American with their stories that don't go back to the Carpathian Mountains and the yeah, like, yeah. but but are very internationally consumed and and that became the standard for horror, while Scrappy Little Hammer made all their great things and when they tried to be influenced by the american horror movies that were so successful mm -hmm. they did seem much more stodgy by comparison mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and it's uh it's uh it's something to be very proud of i think it's it's a it's a, a uniquely american tradition and then then it becomes i suppose recognizably so and then and then of course like everything it can become slightly parodic because you you know you know that if you drive your car in the wrong into the wrong bayou, there'll be someone there with a scythe waiting to get you. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Royston Bay's. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would love you brought up Dracula, and I would love to talk to you about that and and the process. How that was that your conception, or the BBC wanted to make a Dracula and they came to you, or it was something. No, that, it, 
the most extraordinary thing is it started as a joke. Um, we were we were making the third series of Sherlock. We'd literally been filming for a day or two days, and it was the episode where Sherlock comes back from the supposedly comes back from the dead. Right. And uh, I had a photograph on my phone of Benedict Cumberbatch uh, with his collar up in silhouette. And Stephen and I show, show, were sitting at a table in this awards ceremony and we showed it to the then head of drama at the BBC. I said, it looks like Dracula, doesn't it? He said, do you want to do it? Wow. That's how it started. Now, then it wasn't an instant thing because we were still making Sherlock, but we, we kept bringing it, it kept coming up. And then when we decided to stop doing Sherlock, uh, we said, well, we'd love to do it if you want to do it. So that's how it happened. So it took about three or four years to actually come to fruition. And then uh, Stephen and I uh, reread the book uh, again. And, um, you know, having both been childhood fans of it, I guess, and thought, if we're going to do it, what are we going to do with it? Because, and we had all kinds of ideas. I remember having a, a very exciting lunch where we the original idea is we were going to do the we were going to do the novel in one episode it's like the tightest 90 minute version ever then the middle one was going to be set in the 1970s and then the third one was going to be modern day and then as we talked about it we thought no actually what we can do is uh we can spread the, the 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 incidents of the novel over three but just change where when they're set you know and then um have this big twist at the end of episode two spoilers uh that he's actually been asleep for 100 years and we haven't noticed in the interim you know but, uh, that's it, it's, it's, i mean sorry no no i'm just saying it's fantastic because there's such a long history dracula being one of the most adapted characters in film history next to sherlock holmes which we'll get yeah. into <laughs> but to be able to bring something new and fresh and the casting process, Kweis Bang, is that how you pronounce his name? Yes, yes. Um, you know, tell me how that came about. I'm, I'm curious to see, did he come in and read for you? He was somebody you'd seen on stage or in another we, film? Or? We, we, the casting director, uh, we, we drew up a, a very long list, but what we'd said from the beginning is, let's try and find someone, this sounds ridiculous, but let's try and find someone about 45 or 50 that no one's ever heard of <laughs> um, and and hopefully not English because that's what we wanted the the um the Philip Savile Louis Jordan version oh yeah absolute favorites and it's so good and what's brilliant is that Louis Jordan is defiantly French but what he is not is British he is other he is other he has an amazing foreignness and so that was our brief really and then uh, amazingly uh, Kate Rhodes James um the 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 the, uh, the square the film the square is it the square or the circle I can never remember is it the square or the circle yeah the square yeah, yeah it is the square <laughs> what's the circle you know the film the square had just come out and I remember she'd ring place's name and said I think this guy is very interesting and we watched the film and you just kind of go, well, look, it's either Dracula or James Bond, <laughs> possibly both. And um, so we went out to, uh, to Denmark to, to meet him. And um, that's, that's how it happened. But I mean, it was exactly that. That's what we were looking for was this sort of, uh, you can't, an, an unfeignable otherness. And that's, that's what he has, you know, as well as being devastatingly handsome and charismatic. <laughs> that always helps. He is supposed yeah. to be seductive after all. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So, um, but I mean, the big thing for us was, and I, I think this goes for everything, especially like as with Sherlock, where you, you're, um, if, you, if you briefly get the keys to Baker Street or Castle Dracula, then, and, and it is something that has been done a lot, I think it's beholden on you to sort of go, well, what are, what's our take on it? And actually some of my least favorite versions of both stories are, are the ones that are sort of rather, rather dryly respectful. Right, you know? right. Um, I mean, Conan Doyle famously, famously um, laissez-faire with his great creation. And, and uh, when, um, when, uh, they wanted to make a, a, a stage play of Sherlock Holmes and um, 
uh, oh God, what's his name? I'm going mad. Who, who, who was playing Sherlock Holmes? Well, I feel like this out because I can't remember. <laughs> <Not Elena. laughs> but he, um, he sent a cable to Doyle saying, do I have your permission to marry Sherlock Holmes? And he wrote back, you may marry him, murder him, do what you like with him. <laughs> and that's the, the creator, you know. So, uh, and, and with Dracula having been done so many times, it was like, well, this is a really good pop. This is a really good pop classic. It's, it's I mean, it's, but so much of it is wonderful, irreducibly great. You know, the, 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 the Castle Dracula stuff, um, and, but some of it is quite stodgy and, uh, and rather dated and, and, and you, you, Dracula is missing for lots of it. And you, so, you, you know, I think it's fine to, to do a take on it, isn't it? And actually, it, interestingly enough, for the middle episode, we both, without, without any consultation, having read it again, said, the, the captain's diary on the Demeter is such a brilliant idea. What, what, maybe we could do that for the whole episode. Because actually, you know, that's... I'm surprised that Stoker didn't think, didn't make more of it because it's a it's a fantastic trapped environment with a monster on the loose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, what were your favorite portrayals of Dracula? Uh, what were your favorite uh, Dracula movies? Coppola or Bela Lugosi or? Uh, oh well, I mean, growing up, obviously, it was Christopher Christopher Lee was yeah. was was my Dracula, and I love those movies. Um, I think he obviously he was famously hated being associated with it and his yeah I interviewed him so, a couple of times back yeah. in the day <laughs> and uh, you know the wicker man was what he wanted to be thought of yes, for of not uh, not for Dracula but he's good you know he's great and the the, the the two that stand out for me the first one is I think is marvelous and the, the ending of the 58 Dracula is, is a, a, an astonishing piece of work. It's just it still wonderful. holds up beautifully, oh, that, that effect of the crumbling in the sun. Yeah, I mean, be, better than effects they were doing 20 years later. It's, it's beautiful and really powerful and sad uh, and exciting. You know, it's proper Douglas Fairbank stuff, isn't it? It's Peter Cushing always. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, um, my other favorite, well, I love AD 72. You see, that's, that's my guilty pleasure. Uh, but he's, you see, he did, what it, what, for all his complaining, he brings incredible dignity to it and, and a real power. There are moments when he looks kind of feral and genuinely scared. He doesn't look like any, he doesn't look like a man in a cloak with fangs. He looks like a, a, an animal. And yeah. he's really great at that. I think he's a very underrated actor. Um, oh, yeah. That and uh, the Louis Jordan is, is one of my other favorites. Um, yeah. and, and, and Max Schreck, obviously. I, love, I, love yes. I mean, I, I've always, um, Lugosi is problematic because it's very hard from this distance to see what, why it had that effect, except I suppose in a sort of Valentino way, he's, he's a very good looking uh, and very, persuasive sexy man yes in 1931 in, terms yes in 1931 terms yes but the the the, um, the spanish language one is is a much better film yeah and um i feel i obviously everyone feels sorry for the ghost because you can see from son of frankenstein how good he was mm -hmm. uh, but he was rarely given the chance and it's it's a real shame it's a very sad story of course it is but um He's just not in the same league as Karloff. Karloff was a was a was a great actor. And, His acting would stand up in a modern film today. Yeah. It was and so think, subtle and beautiful. I think James Well, I think he James Well genuinely picked him because of his, his startling possibilities of his face. But actually, luckily, he was a brilliant actor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go to Sherlock Holmes, perhaps the most adapted uh, literary character in film and television. Yes. How did that come about? Because you, you absolutely had an entirely new take on Sherlock Holmes. Well, not entirely new, and that, that's, that's how it came about. Um, Stephen Moffat and myself, we were working in Doctor Who and uh, we were always sharing a train back and forth to Wales and we would talk about our other enthusiasms apart from Doctor Who, including James Bond and all kinds of things, and, and Sherlock Holmes, obviously. And... Um, we, it took us a little while in our long friendship to, uh, to admit to each other that, that the Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce films were our favorite ones. 
Yeah. And of course, because they were in their day heretical, because they, they updated it to the Second World War. And then this is absolutely true, although it sounds like a scene from a biopic, this is absolutely how it happened. We were, sh- we were in a carriage. In my imagination, it's like the Sydney Paget illustration, you know, where they're sitting on either sides of a carriage. <laughs> um, and of course, this was, this was what? Uh, this was about 2007, something like that. So we were in the middle of an Afghan war. And I said, isn't it odd that in the, in the study in Scarlet, Dr. Watson is invalided home from the Afghan war and we're in the middle of a new one. And we both looked at each other and that's in, in the biopic, that's the light bulb scene. <laughs> <laughs> and we said, oh, someone should do that. And then re- remarkably, we did nothing about it <laughs> until Stephen, <laughs> absolutely casually mentioned it to Sue, his wife, who happens to be a great TV producer. And she said, why? Well, why aren't we doing it? Um, and then we took it to the BBC and it was the easiest pitch ever. They literally said, modern Sherlock Holmes, yes. <laughs> that was it. Because, of course, it's the most recognisable character in fiction and uh, and it's not expensive if it's modern day. So it, it, it worked in every level. Then what we did, which was really the most fun, was we sat down and worked out how that would work and what it meant in terms of basically two men sharing an apartment uh, above, a, above a, 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 a curry house or something like that in modern, Baker, modern day Baker Street, uh, they wouldn't call each other by their surnames. Um, Sherlock Holmes wouldn't smoke a pipe, but maybe he had a nicotine habit and, 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 and became a three-patch problem and all those sorts of things. You know? So there were the equivalences were, were so much fun. And then some of them were quite sticky because we had to think, well, the character essentially in, invents modern-day forensics, but now everyone does that. So how do you think past that? For instance, we made a pilot, um, which is very good, I think, but it was when the, the show was going to be an hour long and, then, and then, we, then we got commissioned to make them as 90-minute episodes, basically movie-length, and we, so we remade the pilot. And one of the, one of the decisions we changed from the pilot was when, when he's called to a crime scene, he has to put on the paper suit, you know, like they always do. And he looked silly because he's Sherlock Holmes. And... <laughs> And then when we remade it, you know, someone offers him the paper suit and he just kind of looks at them. Because what you want is to him, is Sherlock Holmes to be in his big coat looking amazing. Yes, yes. So it was things like that, which you, you have to think, right, he, he's, he's different to, he's not just a policeman, he's different to them. Inspector Lestrade does all the DNA and everything, but Sherlock Holmes is the man who says, ah, but you don't you, don't you understand? So you confront all of those things head on that come up. Yes, and that 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 I think is the is one of the keys to its success is is the is being bold with it. I think that I think that holds true for an for everything really. If you're, you know, I remember Jonathan Miller talking about his amazing 1966 Alice in Wonderland. If you've seen it, it's an extraordinary no. piece. Of work. Oh, it's beautiful. It's movies movies by Ravi Shankar on a, on a oh, sitar. Wow. And it's got these fantastic British character actors in it, but it's basically, it's a proper trip. It's the most 1966 Alice in Wonderland you could ever imagine. <laughs> but he, he said, you know, if, if you love the story, read the book. But if you're going to do something with it, do something with it. Yeah, well, you definitely did something with it. Did you go <laughs> back and read all of those? Oh, well, I know them backwards. So <laughs> what we would... What we would always do if we got stuck was go back to Doyle. And I think one thing I'm very proud of with the show is we, there was a lot, a lot of people wanted us, wanted to adapt our stories. And we said, no, no, it's go back, just go back and read Doyle. And yeah. the, I, I love the fact that a lot of people didn't realize how much of our show came from the original. You know, they thought we were being clever. And in fact, it was Conan Doyle who was being clever. Yeah, I remember reading all of them as a as a kid myself, and just being entranced. Um, again, you had an actor who is known for that role. You made him a star with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Tell me how that casting process came about. Gosh, well, that was an interesting thing. Uh, I, I'd done a film with Benedict, and then 
um, a couple of years before, and then uh, he was in Atonement, and Stephen and Sue uh, had just watched that. And I and I remember this is another this is another scene from the biopic which will never happen. <laughs> uh, our, our texts crossed, uh, you know, like like when you speak at the same time. And literally, I said, "What about Benedict Cumberbatch?" And he and he sent me one saying, "Have we just seen Atonement? Do you know Benedict Cumberbatch?" It was like, "Hmm, that might be." <laughs> so we again we had a very long list, but he everything just seemed to be right about where he was in his career. That he was. He was a respected stage actor, but wasn't a household name, but he was, he had a kind of, he was on the cusp of something, I guess. And, yeah. Well, um, you, you threw him over the precipice, yeah. <laughs> over the Reichenbach Fall. <laughs> <laughs> so you also had a very meaty uh, role yourself as Mycroft Holmes. So tell me about that experience. Well, I, we, again, we, um, when, when the decision was made to make 90 minute episodes, we, we had a sort of game plan for how we would introduce various parts of the, of the canon, you know, Moriarty, Mycroft, et cetera. And by doing movie length things, everything sort of was pulled up. Um, and so uh, we were gonna introduce the idea of Mycroft later on, and then suddenly it became into episode one. <laughs> episode one. Um, and I, um, I, just, I just auditioned to play a British politician called Peter Mandelson, who is a very, Mycroftian figure, a mm. sort of eminence grise, you know, behind the power behind the throne kind of figure, and who is known as the Prince of Darkness over here. And, oh um, and it just, you know, it just sort of fell into place. Uh, uh, Stephen and Sue said, You should do it. So I went, Oh, very well. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't take much. Uh, yeah. So this uh, Sherlock was, I would guess, your first international huge hit including the united states did it feel different to you yes i mean it was a the, the the night the first episode went out and it was it was scheduled in the middle of the summer which is traditionally a death slot something happened I, literally as we were watching it we were monitoring the response on twitter ben, i think benedict became a star overnight which is yeah. Something that doesn't not really supposed to happen anymore, but it did happen, and the whole show became a phenomenon overnight. So, but you know what it is? You you can't bottle that stuff. It just happened. Something aligned, or everything aligned, and it was the right moment for Sherlock to be modern day, and it was the right moment for Benedict and Martin, and for us, and it just boom. And so yes, and then obviously, is in terms of international profile and an international. Um, hit it, it was it's like nothing else absolutely i've just worked with with the great nick offerman from parks and rec you know, yeah and, uh, oh my god he he i was i was in awe and he just he just went well but you're microphone homes man <laughs> <laughs> and that was uh, that was a moment <laughs> well we need to wrap it up pretty quick but i would just love to hear about your thoughts about the evolution of horror over the decades i mean starting with the silence and you've got universal in the 30s and 40s 50s giant science fiction bugs uh radiation um then along comes hammer through the 60s and 70s and just the the evolution what are the what are the eras of horror that most appeal to you and most give you the excitement i know you started with the hammers as a kid yeah but I, they used to show them in double bills there was a universal and the hammer so it was a perfect wow. blend of black and white and color literally it was like a sort of wizard of oz effect you know but wow i think what i what i like to think is that i'm i'm very interested in what happens next uh, I, since I made those documentaries, and I say it really reinvigorated my love of horror films, I really like trying to keep ahead of the curve rather than falling behind it. And yes. although you you can be very nostalgic for things you grew up with, I also think it's great to discover new things and equally discover new things from the past. I, I, I'm very keen these days on the idea that you, you don't have to you don't have to be held to the list you drew up when you were 14. <laughs> you, can, you can actually say, I mean, there are films like The Thing that are just irreducibly stone cold 
brilliance. And, you know, there's a reason you go back to them and go, wow, this is just as great as it. It's even better than it ever was, you know. But, and then sometimes you can watch a film and think, actually, that's really not the way I remembered it. But, but it's, as, as with that wonderful folk horror documentary, you just go, well, I've never heard, I thought I knew them all. And, <laughs> and you go, where's that been hiding? You know, especially internationally. I think that's the really exciting thing is the idea of horror migrating to a new place and making f- traditional tropes come up fresh. I think that's a really exciting thing to do. Yeah, there are more points of view in the horror genre than there ever have been. And I love yeah. that explosion. Yeah. And, and, and from some countries which don't really have a, a tradition of it, are, are now exploring their own folk stories and their own traditions. And also just the setting being new instantly makes it feel different. Yeah, from a different cultural out, uh, yeah. outlook is, yeah. is exciting. Well, Mark, I thank you so much for spending time. I'm a huge fan of your work and I really appreciate uh, getting to know you. Thank you, mate. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Great. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.